This is an extract from my next book, which is called Tomorrow Sex Will Be Good Again, and that's coming out in February 2021 on Valentine's Day, published by Verso. Sometime in the early 2010s, the porn actor James Dean made a film with a fan whom he called Girl X. He would do this now and then, fans would write to him wanting to have sex with him, or he would put out a call to do a scene with James Dean, and the results would go up on his website. In an interview in May 2017, only a few months before the media would be overwhelmed with discussions of assault and harassment by Harvey Weinstein and others, and only two years after Dean himself was accused of, but not charged with, multiple assaults, he said, I have a do a scene with James Dean contest where women can submit an application. And then after a very long talk and months of me saying, you know, everyone's going to find out, it's going to affect your future, and basically trying to talk them out of it, kind of, then we shoot a scene. A friend sent me the Girl X video a few years ago. What immediately struck me was how unlike much pornography it is, since little of the film involves sex. It's mostly a long, flirtatious, fraught conversation, which circles repeatedly back to whether or not they are in fact going to do this. Girl X hesitates. She moves between playfulness and retreat. She is game, then agonised. She lurches ahead, then stalls. She is torn, reflective, self-questioning, agonised. She thinks her dilemmas out loud, and Dean tries to follow along. She presumably wants to do a scene with James Dean, but when he opens the door to her, she loses some nerve. She walks into the apartment dressed in PVC leggings, a buttoned up silk cream blouse with black detail. Our gaze is behind the camera with Dean filming her. And she paces around, laughing a high-pitched nervous laugh, saying, oh my God, oh my God. We catch glimpses of the space it's generically anonymous, sparkling surfaces, lots of pale wood, and then glimpses of him as he puts the camera down, distressed jeans, big white trainers. He sometimes brings the camera up to her face, she turns away. He teases her, you're a college girl, you're smart and shit, as they move back and forth in the kitchen with its gleaming central island, in the corridor with its bright white dado rails and deep red walls. He asks what she wants to be called, she doesn't answer. Well, he says, I'm going to call you Girl X until you decide what your name is. She's skittish, nervous, I can't even look at you, pacing, moving away, moving in. She sits down at a shiny chrome table on a cream bench. They discuss a contract. She takes a photo of herself. She's about to sign, but then she stops and says, what am I doing with my life? What the fuck am I doing with my life? She can back out at any stage, he says. They can rip the contract up. Eventually, she signs it. We can figure out a stage name later, he says, unless you just want to be Girl X. I don't know, she says in a reluctant drawl. I have no idea. I've never done this. Girl X's nervousness flatters Dean. It's a sign of her awe at meeting this improbable huge star. But it also works perhaps to preempt any repercussions she may be fearing, to undermine what might be taken by Dean, by others, as exhibitionism, as asking perhaps for trouble. She's readying herself for exposure. Girl X is doing something that is geared towards the hungry gaze of others, 
something she imagines will excite and satisfy a spectator, including perhaps the one inside herself, the one who wants to watch herself having sex with Dean. But when she asks, what am I doing with my life? What the fuck am I doing with my life? I feel her imagining too the gaze of another kind of spectator, a sterner one, a censorious one. Both these spectators, the one egging her on and the one admonishing her, are most likely internalised within Girl X, as they are within many women. The spectator we are primed to satisfy and the spectator whose disapproval and reprisal we are afraid to provoke. Girl X is reckoning with the spectators inside her head and with the power of spectacle itself. She is the impulsive seeker after pleasure. She is also alienated, self-conscious and inhibited. She veers between unabashed and then wildly aware of the disparity in her relation to Dean. The stakes for her are high and they make the decision, the giddy decision, to pursue her own desires immensely difficult to see through. These dissociative flickers, these changes of gear and register, they come precisely from the power of punitive ideas about women's sexuality and personhood. Gerlach is grappling with questions that many women may ask themselves, that I have suddenly asked myself, the first time they sleep with a man, or the moment they reveal their desire. Will I be in danger? In revealing myself, have I foregone privacy and dignity? Will I be judged, even by those who want my desire? Will I be pursued, haunted by my own actions? Will I be able to resist the unwanted desire of others? Has saying yes precluded my ability to say no? When Gerlex expresses her ambivalence, I want to have sex with you, she says, but I don't know if I want to show it to the world. He's receptive. You don't want to be slut-shamed, he says. She carries on, like she says, adopting a blokey voice, I saw you fuck him, why don't you fuck me? This is not an entirely paranoid thought on her part. One of the accused in the 2018 so-called rugby rape trial in Northern Ireland allegedly said to the complainant on entering the room where two other men were performing sex acts on her, and when she said no, you fuck the others, why can't you fuck me? A woman's presumed desire, even just once, for one man, makes her vulnerable. Her desire disqualifies her from protection and from justice. Once a woman is thought to have said yes to something, she can say no to nothing. In the film, there are many moments of laughter, joy and pleasure. It can be quite charming to watch. There's humour and playfulness and teasing. Girl X and Dean seem genuinely to like each other chemistry. And she punctures him. No longer awed, she is sarcastic, undeferential, cutting. But there is awkwardness too in mistimed movements, her ambivalence, his uncertainty as to whether to push or hold back. The footage fades in and out. Eventually they overcome the hurdles, they cross the threshold, they have sex. They're sometimes noisy, but there are silent stretches too and pauses in the action. Sometimes she sighs, they laugh, they chat. And as far as it's ever possible to know from the outside, and it's not, it looks pretty good, fun, joyous. They sit in silence for a while, smiling, then agree to go for a cigarette on the balcony. You want me to turn the camera off? He asks. Yes, she says. 
Okay, he says. She starts getting dressed. The camera goes off, he says. The camera goes off, she says. He walks towards the camera, towards us, the viewer. The camera, he says, will go off. We'll probably never know what happened after this, what happened in the breaks between the filmed sections, what was edited out, what conversations we didn't overhear, what sex we didn't see. We'll probably never know what Gerlex made of the allegations against Dean, or whether there were things that day that made her uncomfortable that caused her sorrow or anger. I don't know Gerlex's story. But in the film, I see the painful and familiar experience of being pulled in different directions, of having to balance desire with risk, of having to pay attention to so much in the pursuit of pleasure. Women know that their sexual desire can remove protection from them and can be invoked as proof, not that violence didn't take place, but that violence wasn't in fact violence. Gerlex shows us then that it's not only desire's expression, but its very existence, that are either enabled or inhibited by the conditions in which they are met. How can we know what we want when knowing what we want is both something demanded of us and the source of punishment. No wonder Gerlex has mixed feelings, is paralysed by uncertainty. James Dean understands none of the melancholic weight of sex for Gerlex, because he doesn't have to. Gerlex, however, has grown up with impossible demands. She's living out the double bind in which women exist. That saying no may be difficult, but so too is saying yes. When did we buy the idea that we know what we want, whether in sex or elsewhere? This idea assumes that desire is something that lies in wait, fully formed within us, ready for us to extract. But our desires emerge in interaction. We don't always know what we want. Sometimes we discover things we didn't know we wanted. Sometimes we discover what we want only in the doing. This feature of desire its uncertain, unfolding quality, is frightening. It's frightening because it opens up the possibility of women not knowing themselves fully and of men capitalising on that lack of certainty by coercing or bullying them. But we mustn't deny this aspect of desire as a consequence. Sex is social, it's responsive, it's a dynamic, a conversation, we mustn't insist on a sexual desire that is fixed and known in advance in order to be safe. That would be to hold sexuality hostage to violence. We don't always know what we want and we're not always able to express our desires clearly. This is in part due to the violence, misogyny and shame that make desire's discovery difficult and its expression fraught. But desire's emergent nature its responsiveness to context, to our histories, and to the desires and behaviours of others is also what makes sex potentially rich, exciting, and meaningful. We are social creatures, and our desires have always emerged from day one in relation to those who care or who do not care for us. How then do we make this fact galvanising rather than paralysing? How do we resist retreating into an insistence either that desire is something it is not, transparent, fixed, certain, 
or that sexuality is just too complicated for any sustained ethical or political inquiry. How do we have good sex without insisting that we must first know all of our desire? This is the task before us. Instead of fiddling with formulations of consent, on which we in any case place too high an ethical burden, we need to articulate an ethics of sex that doesn't try frantically to keep desire's uncertainty at bay. A sexual ethics that is worth its, ne that is worth its name has to allow for obscurity, for opacity and for not knowing. We need to start from this premise, this risky, complex premise, that we shouldn't have to know ourselves in order to be safe from violence.